All right, so turn to Colossians 1. Continuing there, starting at verse uh, 15 today. Um, We will... I want to say sadly, but it's not sad, because everything that we'll consider is wonderful, but we'll get through about a verse and a fourth today. Uh, So... I'll read verses uh, 15 to 20 of Colossians 1, but our study will be on uh, verse 15 and then the first phrase of 16. So verses 15 to 20 of Colossians 1. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him, as the Lord Jesus, should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Amen. So last lesson, uh, we worked our way through verse 14 of chapter 1. Maybe you'll remember that Paul began Colossians 1 by defending his apostleship. He defended the fact that he was an apostle and, and how that was the case. And then he moved on to giving thanks to God for the Colossians. You remember we spent some time considering how we might pray for one another and thank the Lord uh, for the work of Christ. After he gave thanks to God for the Colossians, he then proceeds to teach them how to give thanks for the Lord Jesus in prayer. And that's in verses 12 through 14. Notice verse 12 begins giving thanks unto the Father. And then he goes on that list that we worked through last time. And you'll remember from verses 12 to 14 that we learned some lessons about our place in the work of salvation. Some people say that Uh, You contributed nothing to your salvation but the sin which made it necessary. And that's a fair explanation, I think, of what Paul is describing in verses 12 through 14. He describes how we are totally passive. We receive salvation. You might say it's all of grace. We are qualified. We are delivered. We are translated. And in that we have redemption. And as you can imagine, Paul is laying the groundwork to show the supremacy of the Lord Jesus over against what the false teachers in Colossae were saying. Now, if you wanted to kind of visualize this as an image, what Paul is doing is he's going to describe Jesus as greater than all, especially the false teachers, or the false teaching, of course, the teachers, but especially that false teaching. 
And then he goes on this list of saying why that is the case. And you could say verses 12 to 14 were the beginning of that. For no angel or um, spirit that might have been worshipped or, or sought after could bring about the salvation that Christ had accomplished. That's, of course, true. But in light of um, Christmas, um, I didn't choose Colossians particularly for this, but in the Lord's providence, uh, here we are. Paul begins to talk about the two natures of Jesus today, how Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. This does not mean that you imagine the person of the Lord Jesus as half and half, right? That he's half God and half man. It's, it's not even the case that he's uh, to be thought of like this, because the divine nature of Christ cannot be contained. Um, as we said in... Um, yeah, I'll right here. As we said in, uh, or as we will say in John 1, that um, <clears throat> the darkness could not comprehend him, right? And that's the word comprehension. I'll get into that in the sermon. But the darkness, um, the things of the world could not contain Christ <clears throat> any more than his uh, human nature could. But again, Paul is laying the groundwork to show that Jesus is greater and fully sufficient. You look over at chapter 2, uh, we read verses 6 through 10 last time to kind of begin to give us a framework of what the false teachings were. We're also going to look at uh, verses 20 to 23 for just a moment of chapter 2. Uh, so just Colossians 2, verses 6 to 10, he says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord... So he's the one you have received. So walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. All right, so he's rooting everything in Christ. And then he says, Colossians 2.8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy. That is, ruin your faith through this philosophy that was moving through the churches and vain deceit, these lies that were after the tradition of men, after the rudiments or elementary principles of the world, and not after Christ. For in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You can't get any more full than that. And ye are complete in him. You have no need of this false teaching, which is the head of all principality and power. And then chapter 2, verses 20 through 23 gives you more light on the false teaching that was flowing through Colossae. It says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ, right? so with Christ you're dead, and the point is that you're dead from those things that they were teaching, from the rudiments or elementary principles. I believe that word is uh, stoicheia in Greek. Uh, so if, if you're dead with Christ from those things, why, as though living in the world... Are you subject to ordinances, meaning these false teachings of men? Why do you subject yourself to them? And some of the ones that they were being taught were like this. Verse 21, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines 
of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship, that is, um, self-devised uh, worship, and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. And you begin to see as well that it is likely that these teachers were either a type of uh, Gnostic, where they had a negative view of physical things, basically. Uh, Gnostic is a heavily debated term that has quite a breadth of meaning, but one of the most simple meanings is that um, the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. All right, But it also, especially when you see him talking about touch not, taste not, handle not, what does that make you think of? In the Bible. The Old Testament law. Right? Certain Jewish laws, right, that God had given, and probably similar to what was going on in Galatia, where they had a misunderstanding about the role of the Mosaic law and the ceremonial law in the life of the Christian. So to hear this false teaching was probably something woven together with a uh, trying to get the church to continue practicing uh, Judaism or the Old Testament faith. Now, so kind of moving back to chapter 1, as we work our way through these various exalt, exalted phrases that pertain to the Lord Jesus, I'd encourage you to, to wonder and to maybe even write down what you think the false teachers in Colossae must have been saying. If, just look through verses, uh, look at verse 15 and 17 and 18 with me really quick. And look at these titles or these uh, acclamations that he bestows on the Lord Jesus. The first one is in verse 15, he calls him the image, right? The image of the invisible God. The next thing he calls him is the firstborn, firstborn of every creature. And in verse 17, uh, the word before kind of functions as a title. Right? He is before all things. Then in verse 18, he's given another title. He is the head. And then a little bit down further in 18, he is the beginning. And then he says again, he's the firstborn. The first time is the firstborn of every creature. Here in 18, he's the firstborn from the dead. And at the end of verse 18, he gives you the reason for these praises of Christ. So that in all things, he might have the preeminence. Again, showing Christ's greatness over these false teachings, whatever the teachers were saying. So let's begin our study of... Uh, digging a little deeper into verse uh, 15, who is the image of the invisible God. It's, it's not a question there. It's a carryover from verse 14 that he is the image of the invisible God, the one who has um, uh, given us redemption through his blood. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So now you're going to need your handout. Right, we'll look at the first quote there uh, from Peter Martyr Vermigli. He was an Italian reformer who has become uh, quite popular in recent years because his works are being translated into English for the first time in a while. But he says this, uh, so get his name, Peter Martyr Vermigli. Writing to the Colossians, Paul calls him, Christ, the image of the invisible God. This is appropriate in view of his sanctity, 
and excellence, meaning the greatness of Christ makes sense, that he would be called the image of the invisible God. And then he begins to ask a question to help us understand what this phrase means. Has there ever been, or will there ever be, a son who is a more perfect image of his father? We acknowledge and confess him as the only son of God, truly God and truly man. As to his divine nature, he has no brothers. He is the one and only divine word of whom we speak. Also among men, even though he has many brothers by adoption, he stands alone in the excellence of his grace as most pleasing to God. He is the perfect portrait and likeness of his eternal father so that he can be called truly unique. Whether it is on account of his sinlessness or because he is filled with the riches of the divine treasury, he is worthy to be called our Lord. So he's speaking of, again, the greatness and the exaltation of Christ and how this title, that he is the image of the invisible God, is meant to reflect that. A verse that this same exact construction in the Greek is given, the same uh, idea of the image of God where it's bestowed upon Christ is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, and just you can just listen. It says, But if our gospel be hidden, it is hidden to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So Paul relates it there to the preaching of the gospel, right? That Jesus, in the preaching of the gospel, sometimes the gospel is hidden from those who are lost. You might say it's always hidden from those who are lost and that they stay lost. That they have been blinded by the God of this world, speaking of Satan and his place before um or his, his place as the enemy of God and Christ, so that um, if the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ would show on them, they would see Christ, the image of God, that he would shine unto them. It doesn't take long, again, to see how relevant considerations like this are to the season of Christmas, remembering the birth of Christ um, and the incarnation. Now, incarnation is... Maybe a complicated word to you. Incarnation is a flower. That's not what it's talking about. Incarnate is enfleshed. Right? And I find myself, uh, as I study um, the two natures of Christ, uh, preparing for this sermon and just thinking about it a lot in the month of December, that I'm not sure that we always think about the two natures of Christ at Christmas. We just kind of relax and slip into there's a baby born in a manger and his name is Jesus right but that baby is God right so these things are very important to us and we'll get more into it in the sermon but Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God what he means there is that the invisible God is made visible in Jesus Christ. The one of whom verses 12 to 14 spoke of, the one who shed his blood, he is 
imaging the Father. Now, let me tell you what this does not mean. It does not mean that the divine nature of Christ was seen, but that Christ is what we see in order to teach us of the Father. He is sent by the Father, and because of that, we can know that all that we need to see can be seen in Jesus Christ. He makes the invisible visible. All right? uh, it's important for you to grasp that, that it's not talking about uh, specifically the, the divine nature of Christ, because the divine nature of Christ with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are equally God. And they are also equally what we might call spirit in their essence. So a physical divine nature did not take to itself the human nature of Christ. A spiritual divine nature took to itself the human nature of Christ, thereby giving us the man whom we call Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So it doesn't mean that we're seeing the Uh, that we have a sight of the divine nature of Christ and that that makes the invisible God known to us. It means that in the person Jesus Christ, the invisible God is made known. That's what it says here in in my... It says that uh, since he is by nature God, Christ reveals the God who is otherwise invisible. Right. Yep, very good. Put it more simply than I did, for sure. And he is also said to be the firstborn of every creature. We're going to spend some time here because this is a a complicated phrase that um, has been used in church history to prove, uh, to try to prove things that uh, undermine Christianity. Um, The King James says he is the firstborn of every creature. And just a hint there, uh, the way that the King James uses the word creature does not just mean animals. It means creation, the way that we would speak of it, the firstborn of all that has been created. Um, The New King James says firstborn over all creation. Uh, And the ESV says basically the same thing as the King James, the firstborn of all creation. So you've got firstborn over or firstborn over of all creation basically and there i think both translations are trying to give you uh, a bit of help in what they think the term means but what does it mean let's talk about it for a moment firstborn is not a reference to time or chronology right it doesn't mean that in the way that everyone else was born christ was the first one who was born It is a reference of supremacy or rank. It is borrowing a bit off of the Old Testament language of firstborn. But it doesn't seem to be, this is where it's going to get a little complicated, so lend me your minds here. It doesn't seem to be specifically a reference to his humanity. Now, his humanity was created, right? It was created in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He did not come out of heaven into the womb of the Virgin Mary as a grown man, then shrink down really small as a baby, and then be born, right? The divine nature took to itself a human nature 
And that human nature is Jesus Christ that began as a baby in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I don't take this to be the firstborn of every creature, every creature, simply a reference to his humanity because his humanity was created. And also when you move into verse 16, you begin to see that he's talking about how by him all things were created. That cannot be said narrowly speaking, of Jesus Christ, right? Because Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. All things were created thousands of years before that. But actually, we're going to get in to see how Paul is actually saying just that, the thing that I just said he's not saying. It is a reference to his status as the God-man, two natures in one person. You have in this text things being stated about both natures but not separated and applied to the one person. Now, if you could imagine a list of things that the divine son did and then a list of things that Jesus Christ did during his earthly ministry and continues to do now and then combine them into one list. That's how Paul is thinking of it. Okay. Now, look at your handout again. I gave you a quotation from the Confession. And this is one of the more complicated paragraphs, I think, in the Confession. But it's trying to get at this idea that we're thinking about here. It's uh, chapter 8, paragraph 7. It says, Christ, in the work of mediation, meaning in his humanity, acts according to both natures by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet, by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature, is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Now, what does that mean? It's a very complicated language, but it's trying to explain what Paul is doing here. He is speaking of things that both natures of Christ have done, but speaking of them as one because his person is that united. That he doesn't act one moment as the divine nature and act one moment as the human nature. He acts as a person. And the way that the scripture often speaks of these things is as if Christ has done everything that the divine son did even before he was born. Um, I know this is complicated, but this is just Christology. It just is what it is. Um, Psalm 89, verses 26 to 27, gives basically this same language about firstborn. It says, He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. So this one's going to cry out, You are my Father. Also, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. So drawing that same phrase there, that Christ is the firstborn. To say that Christ is the firstborn of every creature is to say that he is greater in every way than all that has been made. Right? And one way you can know this is true is because in verse 16, Paul lists everything that has been made. Right? 
that whether it's in heaven or in the earth, whether it's visible or invisible, whether it's thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all these things were created by him. And in that sense, we can bestow on him the title, the firstborn, the greatest, the most supreme of all creation or over all creation. We could imagine, if you want to, to maybe help you understand the way Paul is using this phrase, if creation gave birth, Christ would be the greatest. Looking out over the whole of humanity, all that was made, Christ is greater than all. Now that's, you know, that sentence before that's a bit of an analogy, but I'm trying to help you understand what he's getting at. And again, we know that this is not specifically about his human nature in isolation because of verse 16, speaking of things that were done before time began. Those things that were performed, of course, by the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity are described there in verse 16, as is uh, verse 17. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. All things were not created by Jesus Christ of Nazareth, properly speaking. But it is because of the unity of the two natures in one person that Paul can speak of the functions or attributes of the natures interchangeably. Now, in some way, this defies logic, right? That doesn't make it unreasonable or far-fetched. It's just hard for us to uh, wrap our minds around. Because Paul is, as I've said, saying things that were done by God the Son before he became man (coughs) as if Jesus Christ, whom is preached, had done them. And that's because of the unity of the two natures in one person. They are that united that they could speak of the functions or the attributes of those two natures interchangeably. Though there are some that try and apply this to Christ's human nature, and they are uh, certainly good folks. Um, uh, one of the guys I quoted last week, uh, John Davenant, he was an uh, English uh, reformer. Uh, he was also present at the Synod of Dort, uh, so he was very much of the Reformed um, mindset. But he has a, a very thorough commentary on Colossians, and, and he, he says that there are some in church history that have tried to apply this phrase, firstborn of every creature, every creation, over all creation, excuse me, firstborn of every creature, have tried to apply that to the human nature. But he only lists one name, but it's a significant name, Augustine. Augustine tried to apply this phrase exclusively to the human nature of Christ. But he also says, and here's your next quote on your handout, it should be still on the first page, I think, that almost all the Greek fathers and many of the Latin interpret the word firstborn of Christ in reference to his divine nature. Kind of like I've just taken it there. I think the logic of... uh, verse 16 being connected to 15 makes it clear that it's talking in some sense about his divine nature, but also in some sense about the whole person. 
And he cites uh, Basil of Caesarea as saying, here's your next quote, He is called the firstborn of every creature because he is the cause of creation coming into existence from things which were not. All right. Now, we know this series of phrases is not, again, exclusively about the divine nature. We can say that it refers to things that the divine nature did, but Paul is not simply applying the fact that Christ is the firstborn of every creature or that he is the image of the invisible God to the divine nature exclusively. The second person of the Trinity, pre-incarnate, cannot image the Father, properly speaking, because in his divinity, as Mr. Hugh read that, that quote from the study Bible, in his divinity, he too is invisible. Now, this is it's wild, what Paul is doing, and I hope you can grasp just a flicker of it, because it's teaching us what it means for Jesus Christ to be fully God and fully man. And Paul is communicating this incredible truth by speaking of the man Jesus Christ as having all of those qualities of divinity and perfect humanity. Look at verse 19. You see that it says, It pleased the Father that in him, Jesus Christ, should all the fullness dwell, all the fullness of the Godhead, all that it means to be God that can be imaged to man is found in the person Jesus Christ. And even when I call him the person, the man, Jesus Christ, as he's called in the book of Acts a couple of times, I'm not saying that he's not God. It's just we use those words interchangeably because he is so united in the two natures that make up the one person. Hebrews 1 is another place we'll read from in the service, but it's got uh, several uh, phrases and verses that apply to this concept, Hebrews 1, 2, God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed the heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Same thing that Paul is doing in Colossians. Who did the speaking? God's Son? Yes. Jesus Christ? Yes. But by whom did God make the worlds? By his Son? Yes. By Jesus Christ? No, but yes, because of the union of the two natures in the one person. He makes it clear there. And these are things we often read over and maybe don't slow down to think about, but this is the complexity of what is called Christology, the study of Christ and his two natures. Um, Davenant, again, he explains the description of Christ in verses 15 and following. I think this is very helpful. Um, and I'll probably write these on the board here. But he says, uh, in reference to uh, the phrase, him being the image of the invisible God... For him being, uh, let's just write, image, that points to an internal relation to God. He's so close to God in that he is God that 
he is able to perfectly image him. With reference to the firstborn, he says, this is a, an external relation to the creature say to creation and just know that I mean creation in general and the reason I want to make that distinction is because of what he does in the next one when he draws attention to the fact that Christ is called the head but he's called the head of the church right so um, he says uh, relation to the preacher renewed and that gets you I think through verse 18 but notice what he's saying here is that Paul is describing how the two natures one person Jesus Christ relates to God internally that he's uh, close to God he images God but then the next title the firstborn of all creation is simply a description of how he relates to creation in general. He is supreme over all creation. But then when Paul moves on to say that he's the head, he's not saying he's the head of creation. He's saying that he is the head of the church, the creature that is renewed. Right. So what Paul is doing is describing three different relationships that Jesus Christ has to God, to man in general, and then to the church particularly. Right. And that kind of helps you... Uh, work through uh, something of what is going on and give a cohesion uh, to these things, knowing that he's not just throwing out a random uh, list. Regarding how Christ, kind of going back a little bit, this is a quote on your handout, I believe. This is Davenant. Uh, he says, regarding how Christ can be called the image of God when he is God, here's the quote. The word God is, in this place, taken with reference to person, not to essence, for it designates the Father only, not the divine nature in general. Christ, therefore, is the, excuse me, the image of the Father, not of the Godhead, right? So Christ is not imaging the Holy Spirit. He is imaging the Father. And you might even say he's not imaging the Son. He's the Son imaging the Father, he is showing to us the Father in his uh, two natures as one person. Um, and then another quote there. I think uh, kind of the rest of my time, I'm going to pick through some phrases in these longer quotes I gave you. But Gene Daly, Daly, I uh, can't remember how to say his name. Um, he was a reformer as well. Um, <clears throat> he says, uh, let us learn from this, what we've considered in verse 15, First, to adore the Lord Jesus as the creator of the universe. And so also, for by him were all things created. That's included. Um, let us learn from this first. To adore the Lord Jesus as creator of the universe. Notice he says, adore the Lord Jesus. Right? He's playing off of exactly what Paul is doing. That he is the creator of the universe and to acknowledge by this work of his, his true and eternal divinity. Let no objection or carnal difficulty, let no heretical subtlety 
ever pluck up this sacred truth out of our hearts. And admire we constantly the goodness and the wisdom of the Father, who gave us such a Savior as our necessity did require. For none was able to repair us, but he who first made us. And the hand alone which created us could restore us to that blessed state from whence we had fallen by sin. And sometimes, oh, I'm jumping in the wrong place there. I flipped back the wrong way. <clears throat> Let me stop there. I want to talk about that for just a second before we go on in the quotes. So put your finger there, put a mark. Notice what he's doing here. It makes you think about the way creation works. Um, you know, in the book of Genesis, where God created, God created by speaking. Well, later on in the Bible, we're told that Jesus is the Logos of God, the Word of God, and all things were made by Him. Logos means speech, utterance. So the speech of God is Jesus Christ. And we were made through Him by God. Right? Isn't that profound to consider? Right? When you think about not just Christmas, but our salvation. Right? We weren't simply, it's not proper to even say that we were made by the Father, saved by the Son, and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. There's a sense of truth in that, but we were made by the Son. Right? He is the working power of God in creation. What a magnificent thing. So when he says, none was able to repair us, but he who first made us, he's not talking about the Father. He's talking about the Son, the speech, the Word of God. The hand alone which created us could restore us to that blessed state from whence we had fallen by sin. And let's continue on in the quote. It says, And since God has given us for mediator and the prince of our salvation, the same one whom this great fame had for its creator, let us embrace him with a firm belief. Be content with his fullness and regard none beside him in heaven or in earth. But it is not enough to confess that the Lord Jesus is the creator of all things and to acknowledge him as our only Savior and mediator. This faith must sanctify our affections and actions, arm us against all the temptations of the enemy, comfort us in affliction, and assure us, I lost my place here. <clears throat> assure us against every fear. For since Jesus... Notice, look at how he says it. For since Jesus has created this grand universe, since thrones and dominions are the work of his hands, since it is by his providence that all this subsists in the state it is, who does not see with what devotion we should serve so powerful a monarch? Considering who he is and what he has done, who does not see what devotion we should devote to him as the king of all things? I'm going to stop there because we're almost on our time. And if anybody has any conversation, questions, or comments, um, 
spoiler alert, the sermon is a lot like this too, this high and lofty doctrine, but this is simply the message of Jesus Christ, who he is, and meditating on what it means for God to become man, specifically the second person of the Trinity to uh, become man. Any thoughts, questions, comments? Yeah, and uh, you make me think of the fact that um, how all of Scripture is, uh, especially in the descriptions of God, analogical. Right? It's by analogy. God is choosing phrases and words that we would know and understand to teach us things about Himself, even though those things about Him can never be fully grasped by us, for we are created 
and he is the creator. Um, this passage is one of the ones that the early uh, Arians would use. Arians were those who uh, denied that Jesus was fully God. They were okay calling him God in a sense, and some of them would say, well, he received God-like status at his baptism or at his resurrection. I mean, there's different arguments about it. But that's one of the reasons that Augustine would go here and argue for a certain type of humanity of Christ because he was trying to overthrow their arguments and he was in, in discussions uh, with them. Um, but I'm going to say it in the sermon, and, and you need to know it now. If we don't have Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man, we don't have Christianity. I mean, we don't. Like, that is the thing that distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. Um, because we can agree in some sense with the Muslims that there is one God. Right? But we also totally disagree in the fact that there are three persons in that Godhead. Right? I mean, the book of Deuteronomy says God is one. And many especially those who reject Christ and try to follow the Old Testament, insist that that means God is one ordinarily. He is numerically one. But that's not what that means, is it? We know from the fullness of Scripture that God is numerically, speaking analogically, three. Right? But, anyway. But it's the language of the disciples come to Jesus and say, show us the Father. Yeah. Jesus says, you see me, see the Father. This is a commentary on that. Yep. Like, what did Jesus mean? That. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, we'll, we'll be constant, we'll be eternally exegeting that reality in glory. Mm-hmm. Like, that will be what we... That's right. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. We'll never reach the end of this contemplation. All right, let's close in prayer. Our Lord, thank you for this uh, time that we've had to consider uh, the two